If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 3. Acts 3, and we'll focus on verses 1 through 16, though probably more on 1 through 10, but maybe it'll overlap between uh, this Sunday and next as we look at this story of the lame beggar who was healed and Peter's sermon that, that followed. Last week, obviously, was Easter Sunday, and so we celebrated the resurrection in a special way. And this week, we're, we're back in the book of Acts. So you might kind of put the timeline in your mind and, and go back to last Sunday as we were thinking about the resurrection. And then fast forward 50 days, roughly, from the resurrection. Kind of interesting to think about how short of a time that, that really is. But 50 days from what we were celebrating last Sunday that we can think about what was happening. Jesus has ascended to the Father at this point after spending about 40 days with his disciples, proving the resurrection and also teaching about the kingdom. The Spirit has come in great power. The day of Pentecost has happened, and now the Spirit is filling and dwelling the followers of Jesus. And the followers of Jesus, the Messiah, are, are growing day by day. As the apostles are teaching and proclaiming the gospel, people are being added into the church every day. Acts 2 tells us. And so when we enter into chapter 3, what we are entering into is the midst of these days that are described at the end of chapter 2. These days when people are being added to the number of disciples while they are all growing in the love of truth that's taught by the apostles. They're all growing in love for one another. They're beholding the power of God uniquely working in their midst. And in fact, I think chapter 3 as we step into it, we sort of enter into one of those specific events that happened in those early days of the church. We'll read chapter 3 in a moment, but as we do, you'll see that, that there, it's very similar to chapter 2 in its structure. It begins with this great miracle, with one of the many signs and wonders that are mentioned in chapter 2, verse 43. This sign of God's power then, as in chapter 2, offers the opportunity for Peter to to preach and to proclaim the good news about Jesus uh, to those who had witnessed this miracle. And then we see the response of those who heard Peter. And then finally there's a summary description of the early church there at the end of chapter 4. So very similar in structure to chapter 2. What we'll see in the coming weeks, though, is that this event and the response to it are actually very different from chapter 2. The day of Pentecost is largely described as a time when people responded positively to this word about Jesus. But as it was even in the days of, of Jesus, the tide quickly shifts. Jesus is widely accepted early on, but quickly faced opposition. That seems to be what's going to happen here in the church. In fact, chapters 3 through 6, where we'll be for the foreseeable future, begin to show us the, the opposition that the early church Face. And it shows it from a few different angles. We'll go through these four chapters and we'll see four different attacks on the, on the church, and they sort of alternate in their source. First, there's this attack from the outside as Peter and John are arrested by the authorities. And then there's an attack from within the church through the deception of Ananias and Sapphira, who are members of the church. Then we go back outside as the apostles are again arrested. And then at the beginning of chapter 6, there's another attack within the church as there's a a dispute about the the widows being fed and what's going on with that. So it's sort of an outside, inside, outside, inside 
kind of wrestling that's happening. And we're reminded of the way that the world, the flesh, and the devil are against God's people, that Satan will attack us in any way that, that he can. These also sort of reveal that the, the real test of any person, you could even say of a business or of any movement, of anything, the real test is when opposition comes. How do we weather the, weather the storms and the difficulties of life? How are we going to deal with conflict and hostility? How's the church going to respond when it faces attacks? Is it going to be something that sort of starts out really great and then fades? Or is it going to grow in strength and and we'll see that in the coming weeks. But for today, we're going to focus specifically on the sign of the healing of a lame man and the first part of, of Peter's sermon that follows. And we're given this very practical encouragement that I'd like to draw, and it's this. When our hearts are dedicated to the glory of God, we will see his power at work. I hope this is simple, and I hope it's very practical, and it's where we'll spend the majority of our time this afternoon, when our hearts are dedicated to the glory of God, we will see his power at work. You can say the opposite way. We will see God's power at work when our hearts are dedicated to the glory of God. But I said the other way, so give it your life. When our hearts are dedicated to the glory of God, we will see his power at work. With that in mind, let's read Acts 3, verses 1 to 16. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He took him by the right hand and raised him up. Immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico, in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? For why do you stare at us as though by our own power of piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect help in the presence of you all. 
Do you and I desire to see God work powerfully among us? Know that the strength of his spirit in our lives, to behold his might and his wonders and his works. As we seek to walk in the spirit as individuals and as a church, longing to see his hand amongst us, we have to begin with a dedication to the glory of God alone. Because when our hearts are dedicated to the glory of God, then and only then will we see his power at work. If we're seeking any glory other than the glory of God, that his power will be absent from us in true life-changing and even world-changing ways. So are we dedicated to the glory of God? As we think about that, and we look at this account of chapter 3, it begins with a, a divine encounter. We'll split this just into to two thoughts, a divine encounter and then a deflected glory. But the first kind of big section we'll look at is a divine encounter. We'll spend the majority of our time here. And what I mean by that phrase in this context is a unique moment when when God works in a powerful way through his children to bless others. You could say that a lot of different ways, but I'll say that again. Uh, uh, this By divine encounter, I mean a unique moment. It's a, a, a unique moment in time when God works in a powerful way through his children to bless others. A moment when an individual comes in contact with a follower of Jesus and distinctively experiences God's power and love. And we've all had these, these moments, whether we are on the giving or the receiving end of it. A moment when God works in some unique and powerful way to bless another person. We would, of course, say that there was a, a special way in which the people who encountered Jesus during his time on earth had, had a divine encounter. They truly interacted with God himself. We might even look back to Abraham or Moses and think about how they had divine encounters, often on mountaintops. They were interacting with God himself. But there are also unique ways in which God meets others through interacting with those who are filled with his spirit. And one such divine encounter happens here between Peter and John and the lame man. Now, I'm not a movie director, but if I was directing Acts, the movie, um, at, at chapter 3, what I would do is I would split the screen. Maybe that's pokey. I don't know. That's why I'm not a director. But I would split the screen in, in two. And, and on the left side, we would, we would see Peter and John walking together towards the temple. It says they were going up to the temple. The temple was always up. You always go up to the temple because it's higher elevation than everything else. And so they're going up to the temple. We see them on, on the left. It's just before 3 p.m. That was the time for evening prayer. And we know from chapter 2 that this was their custom. They went to the times. And so we see them. They're, they're walking. Peter and John are, are talking about things that are going on. They're, they're walking up to them. Then on the right side of the screen, we would simultaneously see the, the lame man being carried by his friends and his relatives to the beautiful gate. There's debate about what exactly which gate this was, so I'm not going to venture any guesses, but we would imagine that this is a place where people often walked, given that this man is being set here to ask for alms. And this, of course, is not the first time that he's been set here. Rather, the text says it was a daily occurrence. He was daily at this gate to ask for alms. Luke, being the doctor, points out that he had been lame from birth, so this wasn't the result of some accident. This was the result of birth. 
He'd been late from birth, and we'll see later on in chapter 4 that he was over 40 years old. So that's kind of the individual that you're picturing in your mind. As the narrative goes on, we, we see that everyone in the temple recognizes this man. <coughs> everyone recognizes him. Many have, have probably don't know his name, but they all knew his face. They all knew his condition because they walked by him so many times. He was a fixture in the temple. He was as consistently a part of the temple as the beautiful gate itself. The layman was almost part of that gate. Maybe he was despised by some. Maybe they didn't like him. That was their favorite gate, and they didn't like that this guy was always there. That was muddy notes. I mentioned that Peter and John probably knew who he was before this day, too. If they're constantly going to the temple, and they probably have the same route, they're going through this gate, and they saw him. Who knows how many times they had also walked past him. Well, back to the to the movie with the split screen, right? The screen is split in two. We've got the, the lame man on his side of the screen is being set down, and Peter and John on their side of the screen are, are walking towards the exact same gate where this man is, is being laid down. And then suddenly, I could pull off, these two scenes would just sort of converge. And the three individuals in this moment would meet in sort of a moment of, of beautiful sovereignty right there at the beautiful gate. The lame man looks up and he asks, well, he doesn't look up. The lame man asks Peter and John for help. He asks for alms, for charity. But Peter and John stop. And right there, this is the moment. This is the meeting that has been ordained by God. It's a divine encounter. And Peter and John following the prompting of the Spirit to speak to this man now, as they have never spoken to him before, are following God's Spirit in them. It's an apparently simple, common encounter that becomes a moment to glorify God. And as I was Thinking and meditating on this, I, I just thought, I wonder if we walk through life with our eyes open to and searching for these kinds of moments. Moments in which the power of God might shine as our lives intersect with the lives of others. Moments not, not necessarily of divine healing, as we see here, but moments of compassion. Moments of the power of God seen through kindness and grace and mercy shown to other people. Moments when God might use our words or our actions to bless another person and to glorify himself. Sadly, if you are like me, you are more focused on yourself than you are on others. We walk through life more concerned with our agendas, with our goals, and with what's on our phone, and how God might be at work around us in everyday interactions that we have with other people. And yet we are surrounded by people. We are surrounded by people created in the image of God, some of whom are even our brothers and sisters in Christ. And they are in need. We're all in need. Maybe financially needy, like this man was. Maybe emotionally or spiritually have a need. Maybe they're in need of basic necessities. Maybe people are in need of skills or training. Maybe they just need some encouragement. Encouragement to grow as a person. Encouragement to grow as a as a follower of Jesus. Maybe they need something simple. They're looking for a cup of cold water or a cup of hot coffee or a, a hug. Just something. They could be anyone. They could be our children. 
They could be our parents, they could be our siblings, our friends, people we work with, people we run into on the street. Anyone, because everyone around us reminds us that our everyday encounters are filled with all these powerful possibilities to honor God in, in some sort of divine encounter, like this run-of-the-mill everyday moment that was here. And as we think about this astonishing miracle of a man lame from birth being enabled to walk, we find that it flows from some very simple, very practical actions and attitudes on the part of, of Peter and John. The question for me and for us then becomes, how can we be more available and more attuned to the divine encounters that are happening in our lives that we might be missing? What are the ways that we can open our eyes to these kinds of things and, and be aware of them? And so with that sort of question in mind, how might we be more available and attuned to the divine encounters that happen in our lives? I want to offer six thoughts, six practical steps from this earth. And the first is, is simply be aware. Be aware. How different things would have been if Peter and John had been in a hurry, unaware of the people around them, rushing past this man who was always there. But I think it's probably less actually about being aware of the people around us and more about being aware of the spirit that is inside us. The way that the spirit might be prompting us to speak to others, to encourage others. And not just to strangers, but to the people that we live and, and work with. Are we aware of the many moments when we could pause in the midst of our journeys and be used by God to bless another person? Are we are our eyes open to that? Open to people and open to the leading of the Spirit. I think this is part of what it means to, to walk in the Spirit. It's to have a, a holiness of life and an attentiveness to the promptings of the Spirit so that when he leads us to approach others, we hear him and we respond. That when he gives us a, a word to say, we say it. We don't grieve the Spirit. We, we walk in his ways. We are aware of him. This, this flows from time in his word and as he is conforming us to the image of Jesus so that we walk through life as Jesus did. Because Jesus walked through life attuned to the Spirit and aware of the hearts of the people that were around him. That's, that was his ministry as it were. Pray in the morning, spend time with the Lord, walk through life, see the needs of people, and meet the things that the Spirit prompts you to do. And as the Spirit resides in us, and as we cultivate an awareness of him and of his leading, our spiritual eyes are open to these kind of divine encounters that we might have in our everyday lives. So are we aware? Are we aware of others and aware of the spirit that is this? Be aware. And with our eyes open and the spirit leading, the next thing we need to do is acknowledge the humanity of others. Acknowledge the humanity of others. I wonder how often this man was walked past as someone who was sort of less than human because of his condition. His inability to walk and the fact that he was forced to beg from others could have led some to treat him as if he was something less than an image bearer of God himself. Or some people could have just seen him as someone who used for their own benefit. 
They saw giving to him as a, a way not to bless him, but to bless them, to secure their salvation. And even as I was just thinking about this, it came to my mind that isn't this what the disciples did when they asked about the man who had been born blind? Was it his sin or the sin of his parents that caused this issue? Peter seems to have learned something about But this guy was a man. He was a son. He was a brother. He was a friend. He was a, a bearer of the image of God. And the reality is that we can devalue other people for countless reasons. We can look at others and judge them for clothes that they wear, or for their weight, or their hygiene, or their disabilities, maybe their age, or their gender, or their color, or their religion. Or maybe we become so familiar with the people that are close to us that we forget the weight of glory that is in them. That the people around us have a living soul that will never die. They are our spouse, they are our roommates, or our children. You think about that, that's my spouse, that's my roommate, that's my child. But they are also eternal creations made by God himself. And they live right next to us. And they will live for all eternity. C.S. Lewis famously put it this way, he says, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of the man. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting disgraces. Of course, I think acknowledging the humanity of others is not only to see their eternal significance, but it's also to, to realize that they're just like us. That the people we're interacting with are, are really just like you and I. And in that sense, what I mean by that is that, that they are in need. Because that's how we all are. There's this John Corman song that he talks about. It's kind of a haunting song. He talks about the death of a homeless woman. And the chorus says over and over again, she's somebody's baby, somebody's baby girl. And whenever I listen to that song, I just have to pause and think that he's, he's pulling out this character and saying, this is someone we would rush past or we would disregard. But the reality is that she's someone's child. Homeless or wealthy, we know that everyone is someone's son or daughter. That they are a human being. There's someone who has known great sorrow. There's someone who has known great joy. There are people like us. People that look in the mirror sometimes and don't really like what's staring back at. There are people that that weep through the night, the people that cry in the morning and try to hide it when they show up at work. The people that that go through all of the ups and downs and the highs and lows that, that each of us do. We seem to think sometimes that we're the only ones that, that are struggling with these things, but acknowledge the humanity of all people, that this is what we are all going through. To acknowledge the humanity of another person is to acknowledge that, that we're all weak and that we are all needy. And we all need help. And if we can see that, then we begin to, to walk through life asking not what can I get from others, but how can I be a, a blessing to others? How can I help others? How can I encourage them? How can I value them? How can I invest in this person for eternity? How can I bless them in a unique way? How could this be a divine power? 
who grasp that common humanity, then we may be more likely to, and this is my third practical step. The first was be aware, the second was to acknowledge the humanity of others, and the third is to look into people's eyes. That may sound like a strange point to draw in the sermon, but look into people's eyes. Because I love what Peter says here. The man asks for alms, and Peter and John look at him, but then they have to say, look at us. And I love that, that they say that. I would think that this man had probably grown used to sort of looking at the ground. No one really wanted to make eye contact with him. Maybe he actually found that he made more money if he didn't look at people. He didn't make them feel uncomfortable. And we've all been there, right? If I don't look at them, then I don't have to take in who they are. I don't have to acknowledge them as a person. But Peter says, look at us. Like I said, I think this probably goes along with acknowledging the humanity of another person. Because when we look in a person's eyes, we, we're not judging that, their outward appearance. We're not doing anything towards them. We're not lusting after them. We're not using them. We're not pridefully thinking that we are better than them. We're forced to focus on the core of who they really are as a person. We are hearing them finally. We're acknowledging them. How could it change our lives if, if we just made it a focus to look at people with care and compassion? Free from any self-centered motive as we interact with them. If we made it a point to look into people's eyes. Now, not to awkwardly stare into people's eyes. We've all experienced that. So, there's obviously... So something to learn here. But but to to look at people and to visibly and genuinely engage with them. That's a small thing. But in our day and age, it's a step towards moving from an inward bent towards an outward focus on other people and how to bless them. There are studies that are talking about how our our necks and our backs are getting messed up because we're looking at devices all the time. What does it look like to, to acknowledge someone? And it may have to be that you say, look at me. We do this with our children. Look at me. Look in my eyes. Because there's something about that, about making that connection. You should do that with all people. So again, what I'm trying to draw from this is that how we can take our moments of interaction with others and seek to allow the Spirit to use them as moments for God's glory. Because I think that's what's happening here, how the Spirit is leading Peter and John. So they are aware, they acknowledge the humanity of others, they look into this person's eyes. Fourth, the fourth thing that we can do is give what you can in the name of Jesus. Give what you can in the name of Jesus. This man is asking for alms. He's asking for Money. So when he looks at Peter, he assumes, the text says, that he is going to receive something, some money. But what does Peter say? I don't have any silver and gold. I don't have any silver and gold. Now, I assume that's not a lie. Peter doesn't strike me as the person that's going to lie. He really doesn't have any silver and gold at that moment. I say that just to say, in these kind of interactions, when someone is asking you for money, don't lie. Don't say, I don't have any money, if you have money. That's a cowardly way to get out of a difficult situation. 
I say that because I think I've done that. I'm sure I've done that. It's an easy way to deal with the problem. I don't have any money to do it. But when we lie to someone, we evaluate every time, especially in this circumstance. So I assume Peter genuinely has no money. He has no money to give this man, but he has something to give this man. So he looks at him and he says, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He offers this man healing in Jesus' name. He offers to eliminate the entire reason that he is sitting there at this gate asking for alms. What a bold, faith-filled statement for him. In that moment, led by the Spirit, he tells this man that faith in Jesus can raise him up and let him walk. And he is asking this man to believe that Jesus can do what Peter is saying that Jesus can do. He said, will you believe in this moment that Jesus can heal you? Now, as we encounter people, people are in need because we are all in need. And we are called to give what we have, to give how the Spirit would, would lead us. It may be silver and gold. It may be finance. But it could be something else. It could be something that they verbally ask for, as this man does. It could be something that they that we know that they need in some unique way. But what we have, we are to, to freely give. And we're to do it in Jesus' name. I think it's very important that he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up. We'll see this more later, but in doing this in Jesus' name, Peter is giving glory to Jesus and not himself. He is making sure that this man knows that it's Jesus, not Peter, who is raising him. F.F. Bruce says this, the cripple had been cured because Jesus had been glorified. From his place of exaltation, Jesus had endowed the disciples with power to act in his name and to perform mighty works such as he himself had performed in the days of his bodily presence. As we seek to to bless others in, in many varied ways, we should always be ready and never ashamed to verbally acknowledge it, acknowledge that what we are giving this person, whatever it might be, is given in the name of. Jesus, that it was given to us from Jesus, it's for the glory of Jesus, it flows from the change that Jesus has made in us. In fact, Peter seems to key in on the power of the name of Jesus later on in his his sermon. In verse 16, he says, as he's talking to the crowd, in his name, Jesus' name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now that's not to say that the name of Jesus is some sort of magic word. You know, that if we say something in Jesus' name, then it's guaranteed to happen. The sons of Stephen later on in the book of Acts are going to learn that that doesn't work. Um, so it's not a, it's not a, a magic word in, in that sense. Rather, this reminds us that the Spirit loves to glorify the Son. And if we're standing to the side and giving the Spirit the opportunity to glorify Jesus, then often His power is going to come in a unique way. 
if we are deliberate about making sure that Jesus is the one that is exalted in our interactions, then it may be that the Spirit will be more prone to step in and do something. To do something in Jesus' name is to do it for Jesus' glory and to attribute all the power of that act to Him. And if we're going to bless others, we have to do it for God's glory alone, in God's strength alone. So give what we can in the name of Jesus. I don't know what you have to give in different circumstances. I hesitate to make a list because there's so many different things that we can bless others that are in need. Maybe they're physical needs or emotional needs or spiritual needs, a word or an action, time. So many ways that we can bless what we give what we can in the name of Jesus. Just a practical thought that popped into my head when I say in the name of Jesus. You actually have to verbally use the name of Jesus. Like, again, it's not a magic word, but it is something where when we are helping others, we say, I'm doing this because of the change that Jesus has brought in me. And because you probably want to use these words Because of the change that Jesus has made in me, I'm doing this. And I'm doing it for Jesus' glory. And that's a weird conversation to have, but it's the right thing. So now having told this man to stand up, Peter then offers his, his hand to him. It says very specifically his right hand. Interesting. And he helps this man to his feet. I think that's a wonderful detail in the story because it's this moment of kindness and it's a moment of power. And I think it gives us two more really practical things. So the fifth thing is offer a hand. And I need a physical hand. You could even write if you wanted for a hug. I have that in my notes, but you don't have to. This is maybe stretching the application a bit, but I don't think so. I'm just reminded of the power of physical touch. That besides the, you know, you think about this guy, besides the people who carried him to the temple, who else during the day or in his life reached out and, and touched him in any way? Who was willing to physically embrace him? And in this moment, Peter offers up a loving, helping hand. And then we find through the rest of the narrative that Peter and John allow this man to just cling to them. He's just hanging all over them. Peter follows in the steps of Jesus. Because Jesus would go as far as to touch lepers to heal them. Jesus could heal with a word. He did it all the time. But he purposely would reach out and touch the people he considered to be untouchable. And Peter could have stood back while this man, you know, stood up to walk. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And he just sort of watches him struggle to his feet. But no, he reaches out his hand. Of course, physical touch is not something that we offer to everyone, and we need to be respectful. We fully understand that in our age. But when it's appropriate, a hug or an expression of care can speak more sometimes than any of our words. Maybe to a stranger, maybe to our children, our spouse, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are not disembodied spirits. God has given us bodies, and he has given us the gift of physical touch to communicate love to one another in appropriate ways. And so we need to be ready and open to that opportunity. But more importantly, I think when Peter offers his hand, he, he teaches us to expect God's power. And that's the sixth thing I would say. 
expect God's power there. As we're going about seeking out these sort of divine encounters, seeking out opportunities to bless others in the name of Jesus, for the glory of Jesus, to lead them to faith in Jesus, that we would expect God's power. When Peter reaches out his hand, that is an act of faith on his part, as much as this man reaching out his hand and grabbing Peter's hand is an act of faith on his part. Peter believes when he reaches out his hand that God is actually going to raise this man up and make him walk. In fact, later on he almost scolds the crowd when he says, why do you wonder at this? It strikes me as a funny question. He says, why are you surprised that God has raised this man who's been lame from birth? Why, why are you surprised that he can walk now? Peter asks that because because he understood the age that he was living in, and that the coming of the Spirit on Pentecost marked the inauguration of this new age, the age of the power of the Spirit. This is what was promised by Isaiah, in Isaiah 35, 5-6, that in this new age the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the deer sing to the This is the continuing of the work of Jesus, remember? We've talked about all the things that Jesus began to do in teaching. Now he has continued to that. So this is the continuing of the work of Jesus through the hands of the disciples. And so Peter expects there to be distinct power associated with this new age, with the presence of the Spirit. He is not surprised at all that this man is able to. What about us? Do we anticipate God's hand using us in significant uncommon, powerful, unexplainable ways to bless others and to glorify God. Do we expect that? Now the application is, is not if we believe something, it's going to happen. It's not a name and a claim and application. But as we are seeking to glorify God, we can, we can expect that God will use us in powerful ways. We can anticipate him blessing others through us because our heart is for the spread of his name and not for the spread of our own name. We see God's power here in visible blessing. This man immediately moves from standing to walking to leaping. This is not a gradual or a partial healing. He doesn't need physical therapy. He's never going to need follow-up surgery on this. He's fully healed. And not only is his physical body Change, but he is filled with great joy and praise to God. His whole demeanor has changed. There are many ways beyond physical healing that we might see God at work in others as we reach out our lives and reach out our hands and bless them. More ways than I can ever miss. Ways that, that might seem mundane but are eternally significant. Ways that lead to joyful praise to new life even in our present day pain and struggles. And each of us, as we are led by God's Spirit and consider these simple simple and practical steps, we can glorify God as we go about our daily lives. We can be a part of divine encounters with the people that we interact with. That this week you could say something to someone that would so encourage them that might carry them for a month or for the rest of their life. You could you could do something for someone that would reveal to them the face of God in a way that they have never seen. You could give someone a hug that communicates 
the love of Jesus in a way that they have never felt before because no one has done that before. What an amazing privilege that we have if we would open our lives. So, these six things again, to be aware, to acknowledge the humanity of other people, to look into another person's eyes, to give what we can in the name of Jesus. Um, to offer a hand, to send physical touch, and then finally to expect God's power. I hope those seem very practical, because I think as we go about our days, sometimes we're, we think we need to do something earth-shattering. But if our eyes are just open to these, there are small, simple things that can lead to amazing ways of glorifying I just want to say them, I just want to follow that up briefly looking after this divine encounter to, to look at the first part of this sermon and we'll come back to it next week. But this, this, the first part of this sermon is a, a deflection of glory. That's the whole point at the beginning here, I think, a deflection of glory off of Peter onto, to God. So this, as we follow the story, the lame man comes into the temple, everyone hears and sees him praising God, and they all know who he is. Everyone recognizes him. They all know this guy. And they're all filled with wonder and amazement. I think the fact that everyone knew this guy was in God's sovereignty. That was on purpose. So there was no denying what happened. And because everyone knew him, it started to draw quite a crowd. The timeline, it would seem that the, the time of prayer happened, though I imagine everyone was pretty distracted. And then Peter and John and their new friend, who just wouldn't let them go, they all go out to another area of the temple called Solomon's Portico. And then it says that everyone came after them. It actually uses the word that they, they ran after them. That's in verse 11. Utterly astounded, they ran together to them in the portico called Solomon. So you can see everyone just running out of the prayer meeting to go see what's going on with these people. And so they, they crowd around, they gather around, to, and as this crowd gathers, Peter, of course, knows exactly what to do. Having glorified Jesus through healing this man in the name of Jesus, he now is going to glorify Jesus by proclaiming salvation in the name of Jesus, which is, of course, what miracles always do in the New Testament. The purpose of the physical miracle is to show the great power of God to change the heart and the soul. Briefly, just to look at this, he begins with two questions in verse 12. Then of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And second, why do you stare at us? Why do you wonder at this? The first we said points to this new age of the spirit of power as a time of powerful works that will happen and that this should not be surprising. But the second question serves to point away from the apostles to Jesus as Messiah and Lord. He says, why are you staring at us like we did something? And then he proceeds to exalt Jesus as the source of his miracle and the source of the miracle and the source of of salvation. How easy it would have been for Peter in that moment to take the credit, but he doesn't. John Stott summarizes the first part of Peter's message with this, these words. He says, the most remarkable feature of Peter's second sermon, as of his first, is its Christ-centeredness. He directed the crowd's attention away from both the healed cripple and the apostles to the Christ whom they disowned by killing him, but God vindicated by raising him. Whose name, having been appropriated by faith, is strong enough to heal the man. The great danger of being used by God in unique ways, even small ways, the danger of being a part of divine powers in our daily lives is to neglect.
neglect to glorify God and to allow others to honor and glorify us. It's to stop at that encounter itself and to fail to point others to the purpose of that encounter. And namely, that purpose is to exalt Jesus as Think about Moses. After years of being used by God in miraculous ways, he failed to do that. God told him to go speak to the rock so that through that rock, God could provide water for the people. But Moses was angry at their rebellion. And so he says to them with Aaron, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? He strikes the rock right on his feet. And the water comes out, but the Lord then says, Because you did not believe me, believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given you. This great judgment will take the glory from God. But Peter has learned this lesson. He steps to the side and he upholds God alone as holy. He honors him in this assembly that has gathered and refuses to receive any of the praise for himself. And he exalts Jesus. He exalts Jesus by clarifying, exalt by, he, he he does this by, he, he deflects the glory by exalting Jesus, by pointing out sin, and then by calling people to faith. We'll look at this next week, but just briefly, he exalts Jesus as the servant of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says he's the holy and righteous one, and that he is the author of life. And then he says to the crowd that they had rejected him. They rejected him as a servant, as they had rejected all the servants. They simply chose a robber and a thief over the only righteous man who had ever lived. And then they killed the author of life. What a sad act. But he points them to faith. He said that it's by faith alone that this man has been saved. Faith in Jesus. Faith is how we come to know salvation because faith is the addition of being unable to do anything. We come to Christ in faith saying, I have no hope of forgiveness except that Jesus, the suffering servant, laid down his life for me. I have no righteousness apart from my own, on my own, except for the righteousness of Jesus, the holy and righteous one. I have no life apart from the resurrection life of the author of my I believe in him and trust in him. Faith glorifies God alone. No one is glorified in salvation by faith. Because salvation by faith is to admit our own only the ability, only God is glorified. And if our salvation glorifies God alone, and so should our lives. When our hearts are dedicated to that, when we are dedicated to the glory of God, then we will see His power at work. We will have divine encounters in our daily lives as we interact with other people, and we will be able to point others to Jesus. We will be able to exalt Jesus. We will be able to point out and reveal their sin and the need of the Savior. And we will be able to call them to faith in Christ for salvation. So again, that's the question. Are we dedicated? Are we committed to the glory of God? And if we are, if that's what our hearts desire, we are seeking to follow after Him, that we will see His power it may not be that a lame man rises to his feet and starts jumping on the face. But there can be people who are lame in other ways, and they may be able to walk through life with new joy, praising God. 
in one way, I guess we are all ready, unable to come to the Father. And if we seek to honor him, and his power works through us, that we can point people to the life that they can have in Christ. And that's our desire.